Let me ask you to open up your Bibles to the book of Romans in chapter 10. The book of Romans in chapter 10. As we come again to one of the most memorable and wonderful and vitally important verses in all of the Bible. Uh, We are continuing to look at Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I do hope, by the way, that that's one of the verses that you have committed to memory. I hope it's in your head. I hope it's in your heart. I read recently about a fellow named Leslie Flynn and how he went into ministry thinking that his mind just wasn't capable of memorizing scripture and thinking that he could not memorize scripture and keep it in his head. He filled the flyleaf of his Bible with verse after verse, cross-references to use when doing evangelism, when counseling people in his church. He, he just had all of these verses in the flyleaf of his Bible because he felt he could not memorize them. But after he got frustrated with awkward moments when he was trying to help people, but he kept having to spend time finding passages He finally decided to give memorizing scripture a shot. And he said, if I can memorize just one verse, then I can memorize just one more, and then ten more, and then even a hundred. So in other words, he he said, I'm going to tackle scripture memory one verse at a time. And the very first morning that he chose to start this, he chose for his first verse to memorize, two verses actually, Romans 10 verses 9 and 10 and he spent 30 minutes reading over these two verses thinking about them making sure he understood them and then reciting them over and over to himself the next morning he made him recite them to himself again from memory check to make sure he had it right and then he added another verse and he made this his daily practice Each morning, he'd rehearse some of the verses he'd memorized in the past, and he would add one more. And we're told that by the end of his life, he had memorized over 20,000 verses of Scripture. In fact, we're told that he could locate almost any verse in his mind by chapter and verse, just as if he had a Bible open in front of him, but it was all in his head. I know a few things that can better grow us up in godliness, that can better change our thinking and affect our attitudes and make a lasting impression upon us more than memorizing scripture. And so let me just suggest, if you haven't done that, let me suggest that you follow in the example of Mr. Leslie Flynn and perhaps Romans 10.9 is a great verse for you to start with. But of course, when you're memorizing scripture, you want to make sure you know what it is that you're memorizing. And the question that we're asking right now is this one. What does it mean that Jesus is Lord? What does it mean that Jesus is Lord? Last Sunday, we saw the fact of Christ's lordship, that we don't make Jesus Lord, he is Lord. It is an objective truth and it remains true whether we believe it or not, agree with it or not, submit to it or not. Jesus is 
Lord, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. He exalted him as the God-man and set him on the throne of the universe. Jesus Christ fulfilled all righteousness, perfectly obeyed his Father on our behalf, if we're Christians, even to the point of bearing our sins and giving up his life. And in response to that ultimate act of obedience... The Father raised Christ and rewarded Christ and crowned him King of Kings. And so he shall be for all time. This morning, I want to cover the next heading in our study of these three words. What does it mean to confess Jesus is Lord? What does that mean? And I want us to think about the nature of Christ's Lordship. The nature of of Christ's lordship. And I think there are at least five truths we need to understand if we are to grasp what it means to confess Jesus as Lord. And here's number one. First, this is an absolute lordship. This is an absolute lordship. When we confess Jesus as Lord, we are not confessing Jesus as a Lord. We are not confessing him as one Lord among others. We are confessing that he is the Lord of lords. We are saying that Jesus is the supreme authority in the universe. There is no higher office than the office Christ holds as Lord. There is no more powerful position. There is no supremer court. All authority all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus and his lordship is absolute and his lordship is unbreakable and any other authority that anybody else has ultimately they have only with his permission when Jesus decrees something it happens when Jesus announces that he will do something in the future There is no power in all the universe that can keep him from fulfilling what he has said. He is the ultimate authority. And friends, this is why it is so foolish to rebel against King Jesus. You cannot win if you rebel against King Jesus. It is a losing proposition. It is Jesus who will be the great judge on the day of judgment. And we will all stand before Christ. And we will all give an account. It is Jesus who told us that he is going to gather the nations together. And separate the people as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. It is Jesus who said in Revelation 1. That he has been given the keys to death and to Hades. Jesus has the power to save. Jesus has the power to condemn. Justice and mercy are all entirely at his disposal. In other words, what I'm saying is this. Your eternal fate is in Christ's hands. He is the great steward of this world. And what he says goes. Now, this has been a great encouragement to Christians in the past. Why was Paul able to speak with such boldness and with such courage before so many powerful people? 
Wednesday night, uh, the teens, we looked at the fearlessness of Paul as he spoke openly to, to Felix and to Agrippa and to Bernice and to Drusilla. And these people had the power to do terrible, terrible things to Paul. And frankly, they were the kind of people who would do it, too. And yet Paul held nothing back. He knew that these high officials in front of him were not the highest authorities. Not even Emperor Nero, the most powerful man in the world at the time. Not even he was the highest authority. Paul knew these people can hurt my body, but my soul is in the care of the able hands of the Lord Most High. And therefore, he was able to speak without fear and without compromise. When the soldiers came to arrest the old man Polycarp in 155 AD for being a Christian, we're told he welcomed the soldiers into his house. He showed them hospitality. He even offered to make them supper. And he did. And they ate. And while they were eating, he went and prayed and prepared himself for the death he knew was to come. This 86-year-old man was brought before the magistrate and a crowd of Romans eager to watch him die. But seeing that Polycarp was an old man, the ruler tried to make things easy for him. Most Christians on trial had to give the threefold evidence that they were recanting their faith. They had to, one, publicly pray to a pagan god. Two, sacrifice to a pagan god. And third, publicly curse the name of Jesus Christ. And only through that threefold evidence could you be set free from the charges of being a Christian. But in Polycarp's case, the magistrate waived all that. He said, Polycarp, all you have to do is say, away with the atheist, and I will set you free. Remember, Christians were called atheists because they rejected the pantheon of Roman gods. But Polycarp, knowing that there's only one God, the true God, Jesus Christ, and knowing that the crowd of Romans around him did not believe in that God, he waved his hands towards them and said, away with the atheists. And obviously this did not please the magistrate. But despite the ruler's appeals, Polycarp would not renounce Christ. He said, Eighty and six years I have served him, and never once has he done me wrong. How could I then blaspheme my king who saved me? Come now, do what you will. The ruler declared threateningly, Bless Caesar. And Polycarp responded, Since you vainly strive to make me bless Caesar, pretending you do not know my real character, hear me clearly. I am a Christian. If you desire to learn the Christian faith, assign me a day and you will hear it. And the magistrate, now angry, cried out, I have wild beasts. I will expose them to you unless you repent. And Polycarp said, bring them on. The ruler said, well, since you despise the wild beasts, unless you repent, I will tame you with fire. But Polycarp answered, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and is soon extinguished. But the fire of the future judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly, that you are ignorant of. 
But why do you delay? Do as you please. And with that, we're told that Polycarp was set ablaze. Where did his courage come from? And he is just emblematic of thousands of Christian martyrs who gave their lives in the opening centuries of Christianity. Where did their courage come from? It came from their confession that ultimately it was Jesus and not this Roman proconsul who was the true Lord. The worst that this Roman ruler could do was simply help usher this aged saint a little more quickly into the presence of his loving king and his loving Lord. For the Christian, the supremacy of Jesus Christ is about as sweet a doctrine as there is. It is sweet to know he is Lord because that Lord is our Christ and he wields his sovereign power for our good and for our ultimate happiness. It is an absolute lordship. Number two. Number two. It is a comprehensive lordship. A comprehensive lordship. Put simply, there is nothing in all of creation which God the Father has not put under the feet of Jesus Christ. Most human kings rule over people. Jesus is a human king that rules over galaxies and over atoms. He rules over solar systems and he rules over the microscopic world. Here is a human king, the God-man, Jesus Christ, and the stars blaze at his command. The, The planets orbit their stars according to the schedule that Christ has set. Fish and birds, volcanoes and rivers, earthworms and elephants... These all exist and act in complete fulfillment to the decrees of the man, Jesus Christ. Before Jesus Christ was a man, when he was the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, and only that, he still had all of that power. But when he became a man in his humanity, Jesus existed apart from all of that power. He remained God, fully divine, but in his humanity, all of that was set aside as he lived on earth for us as one of us. He was a frail, fragile human being. He was a simple man from Nazareth. You wouldn't know him from from anybody else if you saw him on the street. He, He was just a normal guy. Now, in his exaltation, that normal guy from Nazareth, has been given authority over the entire universe. In Revelation 5, John has this vision of a great scroll. And the scroll is God's plan for history. And the question that arises is this, who is worthy to take the scroll of God's plans for human history and make these things happen? Who is able to take the scroll and carry out what is written within it? Is there someone that God can entrust with the authority to take these glorious plans and to make them happen? What's in the scroll? It's God's plan for bringing this world to its proper end. It's God's plan for vindicating His glory, for bringing judgment on the wicked, for delivering God's people safely to a new heavens and a new earth. And of course, in Revelation 5, it is the Lord Jesus Christ 
who is able to take the scroll and is given authority to fulfill the plans of God. Literally, in Romans 5, Romans 5, in Revelation 5, history is placed into the hands of Jesus Christ, the man, the God-man. He is the sovereign mover behind all that happens in this world. Not one event happens in this world apart from the sovereign will of Jesus Christ. Here's just one implication of that. Until Christ was exalted to the throne, angels had always been above men. But now a man has been given authority over all angels and over all spiritual beings. Your Lord, dear Christian, is working all for your good and he has angels at his command to do you good. The Lord of the universe dispatches angels to work for your welfare. Think about the weather. That same man who slept in the boat as the storm terrified the disciples, the same man who calmed the wind and the waves with his words, the same man who walked on the water of the Sea of Galilee, he now dictates all weather. He governs every weather pattern. He does it all according to his Father's will. And of course, included in Christ's lordship is his authority over all men. Christ is Lord of all, including unbelievers, including those who hate him, including those who think he never existed, including those who make fun of him, including those who make fun of his people. Christ still sits on the throne, and to him they will give an account. I've already touched on this a little, but here's our third truth. Christ's lordship is a human lordship. A human lordship. Jesus reigns over all as a real glorified human being. He reigns over all things, including galaxies and cells, as a man with ears and a nose and hands and feet. And this is significant because it means that Christ reigns over all as our mediator, the true mediator between God and man. In his divinity, he is able to relate to the Father in a way that we never can. In his humanity, he's able to relate to us in a way that God is God never could. And he brings us and the Father together. And because he is the God-man, because he reigns as a true human being, Christ can sympathize with those that he reigns over. He knows what it is to be weak and frail and needy, right? Uh, Not to get political at all, okay? But Hillary Clinton is a mega, 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 mega millionaire, okay? If you look at how many houses she owns and how much money she has, uh, you know, I read somewhere that she had not driven herself a car in like 20 years. She's never driven a car in 20 years because there's people that do that for her. And some people look at that and they say, see, she, she can't relate to, to real people, to ordinary people. But nobody will ever be able to say that about the Lord Jesus Christ. Nobody will ever be able to point to Christ and say, well, he doesn't relate to us that he rules over. No, he knows what it is to truly struggle. To struggle with the devil, to struggle with the world, to struggle with the flesh. 
He himself grieved over the death of loved ones. He himself experienced disappointment, discouragement, betrayal. You ever felt like somebody betrayed you? Has anybody ever done something behind your back and let you down? Jesus experienced that. And because of this, he is in every way able to be a compassionate, tender, loving king. He is a king who has walked in the shoes of his subjects. And even now, he is able to relate to our humanness because he himself remains a glorified human being. He bears our nature. All right, not with me if you're still with me. Are you with me? Okay, good. Are these, are these not good truths? Are these not glorious things that we're hearing about, about our Lord Jesus Christ? Number four, this is an earned lordship. This is an earned lordship. As a true man, Christ did what Adam and all of us have failed to do. He obeyed God perfectly. He fulfilled all righteousness, and therefore God has highly exalted him. Uh, In Revelation 5, Christ isn't given the scroll of human history to open up its seals as an act of mercy from the Father. God isn't being gracious to Jesus. Jesus earned his place of lordship. Okay? He earned it. Revelation 5.5, one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. You see, the conquering came first. Jesus came to earth. He conquered sin. He conquered Satan. He conquered death. Why? So that he could be given the scroll and begin to open it as Lord of all. In fact, we're told in the book of Hebrews that the motivation of Jesus Christ in in suffering and dying was the motivation of conquering. That it was the, the joy set before him, the joy of lordship, the joy of being exalted by his Father to the right hand of the Father, the joy of being the Savior of his people, the joy of being the Lord of history. It was for that joy that Christ endured the cross and despised the shame. In Revelation 5, what do the four living creatures and the 24 elders sing? Do they sing about how awfully nice it was of the Father to let Jesus reign? Is that what they sing? No. They sing about the worthiness of Christ. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. That the song of the creatures and the elders in heaven is Christ is worthy to sit on the throne. He is worthy of the office. He is worthy of this lordship. Why? He earned it in his redeeming work. He earned it in his ransoming work. He earned it in fulfilling the will of his Father on earth. We hear this again in, in John's vision. The choir grows larger as myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands of angels suddenly appear. And what do they cry out in a massive, booming, you know, earth? Christ is worthy of the throne. He's, he's fit for the throne. He's right for the throne. He earned it 
and his obedience to God. One more passage on this, and you know it well. Philippians 2. Philippians 2 makes crystal clear how it was Christ's obedience to his Father, even being willing to die and to bear the judgment of God for for sinners, that earned Christ the exaltation and the lordship of the universe. You know these verses. Hear them again. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, do you hear how important that word is? Therefore, because of all that, because of his righteous living, because of his obedience when it was hard, because he did not fail to do exactly what the Father had called him to do, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. First came the humiliation as Christ humbled himself to do the hard thing, and then came the exaltation. As the Father honored the Son for His faithful obedience, His goodness, His purity, His love. There has never been a king more worthy of the throne than Jesus Christ. We look at our political candidates right now. And some of us want to say, isn't there another candidate we can vote for? Can't somebody else jump into the race at the last minute? Jesus Christ is worthy of His throne. Number five, last one. Christ's lordship is a spiritual lordship. It is a spiritual lordship. Now what in the world do I mean by that? We use these religious words, right? It's a spiritual lordship. What, what does that mean? Well, listen carefully so you, can, so you can get this. Jesus is lord simultaneously over a dying kingdom and a new kingdom. Okay? Can you handle that? He's on one throne, but he reigns over a dying kingdom and a new kingdom. The dying kingdom is this world as it exists right now. This world of sinful man. Jesus reigns over this earth, this planet, which is under the curse of God because of our sin. This world is headed to judgment. It will not exist forever as it does now. This kingdom is going to come to an end. People will stand before Christ and they will be assigned to their eternal destinies. Friends, this world that we live on will be baptized with fire. 2 Peter 3 verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Until that day comes, you and I are living in a world that is passing away. You and I are living in the midst of a history that is barreling towards this great last day. 
We live in a day of war and hunger and criminality and injustice and persecution. We live in a day of lust and hatred and godlessness. And yet Jesus is Lord over this world. And He is the one with the scroll in His hand and He is bringing this world to its proper end. He is Lord over this dying kingdom. But then there's a new kingdom. Same king and actually... The same land, too. This earth will be renewed in fire. It will be this earth, but it will be made new. It will be this earth without the curse. It will be this earth without sorrow, without sickness, without pain, without death. In Revelation, we're told that heaven will come to this earth so that this earth will be heaven, just like the Garden of Eden once existed on this earth so that paradise was found here So again, this earth will be paradise. The whole universe will be paradise. So the same king, same land, but made new. And the people of this new kingdom will be those people redeemed by the blood of Jesus. The people of the new kingdom, well, they were just as rebellious and wicked as the others. But in God's sovereign mercy, he saved them. Not because of anything in themselves, but God saved them. God snatched them from the fire. Christ died for them. Christ paid for their sins. Christ accomplished perfect righteousness for them so that His righteousness could be accounted to them. During their lifetimes, Christ sitting on His throne makes sure that every person chosen for this new kingdom hears the gospel. And by His Holy Spirit, He opens up their eyes and He changes their hearts and He makes them new. These people are the blood-bought citizens of a brand new kingdom. Their citizenship is changed. They're no longer part of the world that's dying away. Even though we still live here right now. We are truly citizens of the new kingdom. And this is what Christ meant when He stood before Pilate and He said to Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. Pilate, I did not come to set up some rival nation. Pilate, I did not come to be some political leader. I came to bring about a whole new kind of kingdom. The kind of kingdom that there would have been had Adam never sinned. We call this a spiritual kingdom because the Holy Spirit of God is all over it. Jesus' lordship is a spiritual lordship because it is Jesus Christ who himself is full of the Spirit. And he now has the Spirit at his bidding. And the Spirit joyfully submits even to the man, Jesus Christ. Think about that. The Holy Spirit submits to a man. We would say that's blasphemy. The whole God submitting to a man... But in the God-man, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit submits to a man. And Jesus on his throne is building his new kingdom through the Holy Spirit doing the bidding of Jesus. And so it is Jesus who sends the Spirit to raise up gospel preachers or to give you the, to be willing to open your mouth when you're sitting with your friend in Hardy's, right? So that you share the gospel. And it's the Spirit who comes and opens up their eyes and opens up their heart to to, to understand and believe the gospel. It's the Spirit who makes them new, all at the bidding of Christ. It's the Spirit who then not only saves someone, but the Spirit who does the work of sanctifying. You and I right now, 
hearing the word of God are being made holy by the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ reigning over his new kingdom, accomplishing his purposes through the Holy Spirit. And that's what we mean when we say he is a, his is a spiritual lordship. And there will be a day in the new heavens and the new earth when not only will the king be full of the Holy Spirit of God, not only will every citizen be full of the Holy Spirit of God, but I think even the very land itself will be blessed by the Spirit of God. And the marks of the Spirit, love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, these will mark the kingdom where Christ reigns forever and ever. Parents, have you ever just wanted to reach into the hearts of your children and change them? Have you ever wanted to just reach in and make them do what they know, what you know is right? Well, this is how Jesus Christ is able to reign. He is actually able to go into citizens who are rebellious and on their way to hell. And he opens their eyes and he woos their hearts, but in a sovereign way. And he brings them to obedience and brings them to himself. All right, I close with this word of application. It applies to the unbeliever who may be longing right now to belong to Jesus. I want to be conquered by Jesus. I want Jesus to have my heart. I want to be one of Jesus' people. Is that you? Maybe you're hearing about this great king and you don't want to continue to be a rebel. You want to come to the place of submitting your life to him. You want to trust him. You want to have the the new heart that I've described. You want to go to the new heavens and the new earth and be part of the new humanity. Is that you? Is that what you want? Kids? Teens? Adults? Is that what you want? To be part of the new humanity? This is also for Christians who see... That they still have a ways to go to be godly. Dear Christian, do you see still areas of your life that are in some senses unconquered by Christ? Areas of your life where the Spirit has not yet swept out that corner of your heart and gotten that dirt out of you because you're still in process? How can you grow now? In other words, here's the question. How can you be more subdued by Christ how can you be brought to be more obedient to Christ more trusting in Christ unbeliever for salvation believer for growth here are the answers go them very quickly number one believe in your heart the gospel believe in your heart that Christ has done everything necessary for you to go to heaven entrust yourself completely to Christ number two Confess Jesus as Lord. And confess Him not just as Lord of all, but confess Him as Lord of you. Go to Jesus in prayer and surrender yourself anew to Jesus Christ. My family visited the North Carolina uh, History Museum a couple weeks ago where they had the Billy Graham exhibit uh, going on. And uh, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a really good exhibit. And uh, one of the things that's uh, shown in that exhibit is where Billy Graham was brought to a certain point in his life when he was questioning the Bible and whether he could trust it or not and questioning who he was going to be in his future. And he says, I finally came to a place where I just got on my knees before Christ and just said, Jesus, I'm yours. I completely surrender. Wherever you want me to go, whoever you want me to be, whatever you want me to do, you make it known, I'm yours. And I'm simply asking you, 
Have you ever prayed a prayer like that? Is that where you are when you confess Jesus as Lord? Do you see how dangerous it is to pray a prayer like that? It's a daring prayer. It's a risky prayer. But praying that kind of prayer is what it means to be a Christian. He is Lord, which means I am His. Lord, direct me in how you want me to go. It's the scariest place in the world and it's the safest place in the world to confess Christ as Lord. Third, pray for Jesus to completely conquer you. Do you ever pray that way? Christ, I know there's still parts of me that are wanting to rebel. There's still parts of me that want to kick against you. Jesus, will you just conquer me completely? Do you ever pray that way? The Puritans prayed that way. We sing that way. We sing it last week, I think. Oh, great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. Own it all and reign supreme. Conquer every rebel power. Let no vice or sin remain that resists your holy war. You have loved and purchased me. Make me yours forevermore. We seen that last week, I think. right? Lord, come get rid of anything within me that still resists you. Conquer me completely. I want to be completely yours. And then finally, make good use of the means of grace. Jesus has given you certain commands through which he has promised to bless you and to grow you up and to make you more obedient to himself. So be in your Bible, be in prayer, be in church, serve others, deny yourself. Through these very simple yet profound things, Christ will make you more humble and obedient to him and therefore you, you will be made a shining light in this world and a blessing to others and a testimony to the true joy and peace that is found when we confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.